Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. You guys can't hear the uh, lawnmower going on outside, can you? Across the street? Not at all. No. Okay, perfect. So guys, uh, this week it's myself, Jason. Uh, We're here with Jack and Parth. Ryan has the week off. Uh, We're hoping that he's doing something fun. For this week's episode, we're going to talk about a few different things. We're going to revisit what we did last week. Parth, we're going to ask you to share a little bit with us about what you've been experimenting with. Then, of course, big news of the week had the Ethereum merge happen last week. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. We're also going to talk about the OFAC sanctions, frequently asked questions, updates related to Tornado Cash. And we're going to bring it home with some rewards discussion around uh, both Starbucks and Abra. So with that, Parth, what did you try out last week? Yeah, no, I, I think this is a this is going to be a really interesting section. Uh, so last week, I tried using this protocol called ReMeme, which is kind of funny. So it's an on-chain database for memes where you can upload and edit memes, right? So if if Jack decided to start this meme and it gets really famous, it gets viral, then he should get bragging rights, right? Uh, which doesn't happen now because you don't know where the source, what the source of the meme is. However, if it's on the blockchain, you can pretty much trace it back to Jack's wallet uh, since he would have a signed transaction. So that's something which I tried out last week. The Rememe protocol came out by the Aave team and it can be used on Lens, which is their Web3 social media layer. So that was kind of fun. That's pretty cool. I'm always looking at these different memes and I don't know where they came from, but I see them just reused and maybe modified just a bit along the way. So, so you're telling me now you have bragging rights. Then the question is really going to be if you start out from the beginning, like, what if you're like basically just copying somebody else's meme, but you're the first to register? Absolutely. You know, something we'll have to deal with. So yeah. Intellectual property rights, <laughs> unknown. Exactly. Well, it's funny because I, I do wonder, will you start to see maybe some adoption of uh, decentralized ID and then memes become credentials? So that would be like Absolutely. a really cool next step. Yeah. It would be an interesting space to see. Well, it, it's definitely been an interesting week. I know a lot of people have been watching uh, with bated breath to see what happens when we saw the second largest cryptocurrency by market cap change from a proof of work chain to a proof of stake chain. Lots of comparisons. You know, I've seen memes about changing out the engines while you're flying the plane. I've also seen uh, other memes that are less uh, less constructive. But uh, Jack, I'm, I'm curious uh, for you and Parth, what do you guys think of this? It seems like it went over fairly well from a software upgrade, but so still a lot of questions. And uh, did we see any forks as a result of it? Yeah. So maybe maybe we go memes to macro and then macro yeah. to merge here. Oh, yeah. Actually, that's way better. Good choice. So so just to set the stage around price action, right? Just a, a quick macro update. We saw the price of Bitcoin uh, drop 13% over the past week. Uh, at the time of this recording, we're sitting just under $20,000, uh, $19,300 for the you know, what price of one Bitcoin, uh, the price of ETH, surprisingly, as the merge went off, what, what many would 
would say was successfully uh, down more, down 21% over the past week. And that means that ETH BTC, which was sort of trading along this resistance range, got sort of denied at its resistance. Um, and total total crypto market cap, you know, if the price of Bitcoin and the price of ETH are both down, it shouldn't be surprising that you know total crypto market cap was down 12.7%, just shy of a, a trillion dollars uh, in the total crypto market cap. Bitcoin dominance uh, sort of sat around 40% over the past week, so relatively unchanged, while ETH dominance fell from just under 20% to just under 18%, so it dropped roughly 2%. And really, there were two things going on last week, one outside of crypto, and that was inflation data, right? We saw inflation data came in you know, relatively high. I mean, the, the expected number, I think, was 8.1%. We got 83 uh, And we saw you know, the, the response in markets was not kind, right? We've, we've seen this sort of time and time again throughout the year is if the inflation data comes in hotter than expected, it, it's sort of a feedback loop of, well, then the expectation is that the next FOMC meeting, we're going to see you know, more tightening. We're going to see more, you know, this, this push for quantitative tightening uh, in terms of Fed balance sheet. And, we, you know, we saw 10 years rose highest in recent, uh, recent months to 3.5%. Uh, that's against 3.35%. Ten-year tips, you know, highest since pre-COVID. The odds of the FOMC meeting, which is surprisingly this week, feels like it sort of snuck up on us, uh, are that you're getting either 75 or 100 basis points. Seems like 75 basis points is more likely. And now futures are, are basically baking in that you could see Fed funds over 4% before the end of the year. That means you have this one meeting and then two more. I think November and December, um, and so across those three meetings, you go from this range is is 2.25 to 2.5 percent uh, up to four percent. So you'd get at least two more raises, including you know, this week. So I mean, that's crazy. Put it in context, right? We haven't seen the ten-year yield at this level since 2011, right? So it, you could look at it and say, okay, this is just bad timing. You know, the merge happened, uh, the 75 versus 100 basis point follow-on. I think it's that this would be the third consecutive 75 basis point hike. So the, the backdrop of macro, as you say, it's really challenging right now. So um, I guess we could look at the price action and question whether or not it's attributable to the event on chain or more so is it just uh, a victim of, of coincidental timing with the broader macro perspective? Yeah, Jason, I always harp on the fact that it's not just 10-year nominal yields tightening. It's the net effect of forward inflation expectations. So it's, to me, like 10-year tips charts are more important than just the 10-year on its own. And what you've had is, for better or for worse, maybe the bond market is wrong, but the expectation for forward inflation hasn't gotten you know that stretched versus that the actual yields, nominal yields themselves have risen far faster than in forward inflation expectations. And therefore, the net effect is the whole system is really seeing this tightening, right, on, in real terms, which is what really matters. And it especially matters to like an asset like Bitcoin, right? It's posing itself as a non-sovereign store of value alternative. Well, if bonds become relatively more attractive because the forward real yield baked into those bonds is higher, then investors are going to find these alternatives not as attractive, right? So gold and precious metals and, and crypto aren't going to be as attractive when you see this net tightening. That's right. And a lot of people who aren't following the markets every day may not realize that the yield moves inverse to the price, which means people are selling off the, the, their longer debt in order to find shorter term maturities that have higher coupons. So they're able to actually manage that, uh, that risk versus the duration. So I think it's a really, really interesting alignment. But yeah, like you know, this is what's happening in the world. You know, we we find ourselves in the crypto world 
which at times seems to be so, so fast moving and, and so seemingly independent of externalities, but it really does have a lot of, um, a lot of connection with, if not causation, but correlation with uh, macro markets. With all that being said, let's dive back into the merge. I mean, this was a pretty big deal, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so that's that's really the other big event, right? We have sort of macro and this inflation discussion story, uh, as well as the merge uh, over the past week. And so I sort of pulled out, you know, to me, there's like six or seven observations that I had in terms of whether it be data or just sort of the narrative and whether or not it's playing out over the past, you know, now we're looking at five or six days after the merge, right? So let's go through each of these one by one, and maybe we can sort of chat about them. Uh, so, so first, one of the big sort of uh, you know, discussion points between moving from proof of work to proof of stake is the reduction in energy consumption, right? So we saw ETH successfully transition to proof of stake. Again, it, it seemed relatively non-eventful. I mean, there was quite a bit of talk on Twitter that, hey, it happened, you know, hurrah, you know, it, it happened without any issues. But there was a lot going on in the background. And one of those things is you basically just switched off the fact that miners were no longer getting paid anything in order to confirm blocks on the mainnet Ethereum, which you know converted to effectively the consensus layer with validators, right? So you saw a reduction in energy consumption of 99%, but then sort of the counterpoint to that is, well, all of those GPUs, all that mining equipment still exists. And really what ended up happening, at least in the short term, is you saw a transition of those miners to just point from one network to the other. And they pointed over to either Ethereum Classic, which I saw hash rate roughly quadrupled. It's now roughly double pre-merge where it was, right? And like ultimately over the long term, if you don't have people making transactions and having utility come from that network, then it's not profitable to mine on that network. And so you probably see that hash rate you know, come back down unless for some reason people start building on Ethereum Classic, which in large part they aren't, uh, at least relative to Ethereum. And then you also saw the fork, right? The Ethereum proof of work fork, everybody was sort of talking about it. Market makers were hedging. You could see uh, funding rates where people would short the perpetual future and hold the spot because then they would get issued that, that fork effectively. Uh, that all did end up happening. And since then, we've had sort of a, ho a series of news around the, the proof of work fork where this past weekend, there were smart contract hacks, replay attacks, uh, a lot of issues. And I think we talked about it before. You're probably going to see the fork, but it's likely not to be long lived, uh, at least in any meaningful capacity. And so again, ETH shuts off its mining and then that mining migrates. But over time, you know, those GPUs find different use cases, but it's not mining mainnet Ethereum anymore. What do you guys say? Yeah, I think I'm going to jump in here. So I think one of the bigger narratives is that ETH mining has now become obsolete, right? And people do not sort of realize how big this industry was. So miners generated 20 billion US dollars in revenue just in 2021, which is huge. Um, and it's sort of estimated that there are close to $5 billion worth of hardware, worth of mining hardware, uh, which is out there. So now it has to be either repurposed um, or sold. Or you could pretty much go to um, Ethereum Classic or mine on the ETH Pow chain. Now, there are quite a few issues with the ETH Pow chain, and I was looking at this really closely, but uh, pretty much the ETH Pow chain lost a lot of momentum, right? So they had like a lot of technical issues. So even if I, with my uh, mining GPUs, want to participate in the ETH Pow chain, they had conflict conflicting chain IDs, they did not have a block explorer, they did not have a public RPC endpoint. So they pretty much missed the momentum right at launch. 
and now that they are still working on the tooling and the infrastructure, I feel like they have sort of lost that op- opportunity to really capture uh, the audience for EatPow. Um, so I, in my opinion, I think EatPow would not actually be as relevant. What, what is it trading at now? $7, $8? And so it's not going to be something huge uh, in the future. Yeah, I think originally it priced at like a half a percent going into the merge of the price of an Ethereum token. And now it's, I don't know, not even a meaningful. I do also want to talk about how, um, and I know you mentioned this before, but energy efficiency, just from a macro point of view, has become such a big thing now. And so this is great timing on how we know that there is a shortage of of energy production. Uh, we've been seeing some issues in Europe. And so just the narrative of going uh, ESG pro um, has would probably help Ethereum. So you are seeing these energy narratives in different parts of the world. Well, I, th- I think it's it's interesting. We say energy shortage. I would agree. Uh, but I also think that it's energy dislocation uh, between supply and demand, because I think we see some areas with lots of supply and not enough demand and certainly areas with high demand and not enough supply. So I do think that the, the energy discussion is going to become even more relevant as, as time goes on, because it's about perception. And I think this is one of those things a lot of people have been focusing on is what what are the ways in which we can manage the, the benefits of things like public permissionless blockchains versus the, the potential consumption of energy or um, in some cases, look at maybe misalignment of incentives. When So we, we talk a lot about Bitcoin and the innovative mining techniques because you can move machines to places where there's trapped energy. I do wonder uh, if we'll see more of that in the Ethereum space as well. But I, I just wanted to ask the question, which seems like a simple question that everyone else is probably asking is, so if these Ethereum miners can be repurposed, will we see the mining or the hash power go to other blockchains that have similar consensus mechanisms? I, I have my doubts. I think I saw uh, F2 and the bigger uh, Ethereum mining pools, and they have said that they will completely transition to VR and AR. And so they would be using their GPUs in, in more metaverse-centric games for graphics rendering. I don't see a lot of people switching to other blockchains like Ravencoin or EatPow. Great. So I want to keep us moving. So because that was only the first point and it took us five minutes. So this next point, I don't know that there's all that much to talk about. So I'll, I'll do it briefly. Uh, the next point is ETH becomes a yield bearing asset, right? It already was pre-merge if you wanted to stake on the consensus layer. And again, it's illiquid uh, pre-merge and post-merge. We're still waiting for, for upgrades post-merge for that liquidity. Uh, but we have seen yields rise because there's effectively three-ish ways that you can get paid as a, as a validator. Right. One is block issuance that existed before the merge, right? At the, at the creation of the beacon chain, uh, that continues to exist. And so yields pre merge. I'm just looking at like staked ETH on Lido. I mean, they take a 10% cut, but just using it as a rough proxy, they were paying out 3.8% the week prior to the merge. Today, they're paying out 5.3%. And that's a tiny sample size. But again, you can see the effect of the other two ways that you can get paid now from execution layer transactions. One is tips and, and two is MEV, maximal extract extractable value. Um, don't want to spend any time on that just because it's not a huge uh, talking point and we have to keep moving. But again, we see yields rise because now actual there's a connection between transactions and actual like fee accrual for stakers. I'm going to jump in just for a quick second because I think this is really important. But I think um, so so far as of now, we have close to 400,000 validators, right? Staking close to 13 million Ether, which is like a lot. And I know I read this in one of Coinbase's report that they have signaled that staking could give you as high APYs as 9%. 
And the important part is that you are also contributing to Ethereum's network security. So I think you would see increase in staking. Right. And especially as you see more people transacting on the network. And that relates to our next topic or, or narrative, which was ETH as ultrasound money. Right. We're seeing a lot of people post the website ultrasound.money screenshots of it where, you know, there's been net ether issued. There's more Ether in existence post-merge than there was prior to the merge, right? There's 3,000 Ether that have been issued on net, right? Remember, there was the EIP-1559 London hard fork upgrade that introduced burning, and then the merge removed the incentives for miners, and that removed 90% of ETH issuance. And so on net, you know, people around Ethereum were saying, you're going to see a net burning because you could already see a net burning with 10 times as much ETH issued on a daily basis. What's actually happened, you've had a reduction in issuance. There would have been 54,000 more Ether issued between the merge. And while we're talking right now, there's only been 3,000 net issued. And so that brings your inflation rate down from what was roughly 4% to like 0.2% on an annualized basis. But the important talking point here is, more transactions or more people looking for that block space, more demand for the block space increases the base fee that gets burned, which then means that the balance or imbalance has more to do with how much activity is on ETH's base layer. Yeah, just to get, get into like super specifics. So if the ETH gas is greater than 15 GWAY, that's when the system becomes deflationary. So it really depends. And ETH gas is fully dictated by network congestion. So if you have more people like you did in 2021 or 2020, then um, Ethereum becomes deflationary. Also, um, if, just want to emphasize on what Jack said, uh, but if you haven't, check out ultrasound.money. It also lets you simulate proof of work chains. Right. And so as we see more interaction with the protocol, you're likely to actually see that you know, that burning greater than issuance effect that, that so many people were talking about. But again, because there's less network activity, less interest uh, at the moment because prices are waning, um, they typically tend to be correlated like TVL on DeFi protocols and the price of the assets. Um, so wait and see there, but it's doing what it was supposed to be doing. It's just not doing exactly what people you know, around the Ethereum community were hoping it would do two days after where they could point to it and say, see, now we're burning uh, and, and Bitcoin's issuing or something like that, right? So it's a little more nuanced. Point number four, block times are coming in now consistently every 12 seconds. I mean, we have seen a few times when there's missed blocks and then it goes to effectively a 24 second block time because you go one block, you missed it, now it's another block. And so that, that same block that didn't happen happens in 24 seconds. But in large part, it's been happening consistently every 12 seconds before under proof of work mining, right? You're averaging, I think on ETH, it was 13 seconds, but that's an average. And so you could see the distribution was like, you didn't know how fast those blocks were coming in. Parth, you're the developer here. How important is that for like a protocol? Super, super important. I think 12 second fixed block confirmation is such great UX. Because originally, if you are doing a transaction, even if you are simply swapping tokens on Uniswap, it could really vary from 13.5 seconds to actually like 60, 65 seconds, which is just horrible UX. At least now you get more finality uh, and you know when you'll get finality, which is great. Great. And then point five uh, is around centralization. And I think everybody talked about this before when we saw the size of Lido. Right, Lido DAO controls 30% of stake ETH today, and 60% of stake ETH is controlled across four entities. Lido has 
effectively half of that. And then Coinbase, Kraken, and Binance, all three different exchanges, uh, combined to make up another roughly 30%. Uh, and so you can see there's already discussions around, okay, is this really decentralized if there's four entities that control you know, a, a large amount of this uh, you know, staked Ethereum? Yeah. One of the bigger narratives that we'll see is like bigger institutions coming into staking. Uh, and so Lido, Coinbase sort of had the first mover advantage, but I'm also hearing rumblings about how even blue chip DeFi projects would run their own Ethereum nodes to sort of re help reduce centralization by giants like Coinbase and, and Lido. Yeah. And we've seen you know, even Vitalik uh, and the Ethereum Foundation talk about the fact that Lido is so large and like, what are the different resolutions, right? Do they further decentralize over time or do we, you know, do we try to incentivize them in, in some way to not accept more staked ETH and try to only be a certain percentage? I mean, the exact outcome isn't known, but I think you'll see as you know, one entity gets larger, the emphasis will be to have other entities that can compete against it. And then you have this robust global market that's competing against each other. And again, Lido is not one single staking entity. It's a DAO that controls you know, governance and it's smart contracts, right? And it's 28 different validators today and it's expanding sort of over time. I think the goal is over 100 different separate validators. Um, so it's not really one entity. Point number six is uh, liquid stake ETH. This is a quick one, uh, but like Lido's Steeth was trading at a discount of like three, four, five percent uh, normally pre-merge. It's now trading at like just over a one percent discount. And so you can see sort of liquid staked ETH is now sort of pricing in the fact that you will have these upgrades that then make it one for one redeemable. Same thing with CB ETH, Coinbase's CB ETH uh, is another liquid staked ETH that came out a couple of weeks ago. That was trading at a six or 7% discount. Now it's a three or 4% discount. Again, it's not liquid yet, but you can see the market starting to price in like, oh, we actually did have the merge. It didn't get delayed again. And you can see that markets are starting to price in the fact that eventually they'll have full liquidity to those assets. And then the last seventh point, uh, we saw Chair Gensler, uh, talk about raising concerns around staking protocols, protocols that pay interest. I don't think he actually explicitly was directing it at Ethereum, but it was during the week of the merge right after the transition that this came out in some Bloomberg reports. So that's going to be another talking point, right? Centralization and then that whole regulatory aspect of whether or not it's a security, I think will be talked about going forward now that you're on proof of stake. And so if we go from SEC Gensler Maybe we stick to regulatory uh, OFAC sanctions. Jason, I think you have some interesting things uh, to observe around Tornado Cash and OFAC. Yeah, so this this is a story that I've been following for a while. I'm really interested, uh, for those who may not be familiar, just a quick recap. Uh, Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control had placed sanctions against Tornado Cash, which was a, a crypto mixing service. And uh, in response to some, I will say, um, strong feedback from the community, OFAC has recently updated their frequently asked questions to try and address how American users of Tornado Cash could access the ETH or digital assets they have that have been involved in transactions there. They also addressed the question about what to do if you are the victim of a dusting attack where uh, some Tornado Cash related Ethereum might be sent to your wallet uh, un without any intention on your part of receiving it, someone just sending it in into your wallet. So what, what OFAC came out with was saying that applicants or, or people can apply for an OFAC license to uh, remove their Ethereum or get access to their Ethereum. But in order to do so, they have to provide information such as the to and from addresses. 
the transaction hashes, and the date and timing of the transaction. So in effect, they are providing all the required information for OFAC to know your transaction or KYT. Uh, with the, the dusting attack is really interesting. They basically said, yes, if you're a US person and you've received this type of um, asset, you don't need to immediately report the transaction. So a lot of people were questioning. We saw some celebrities were recipients of un, unwanted ETH. Um, so now we have a, a path for how to address that situation. But I think that what's really interesting is we also saw that there was, uh, there's been a civil lawsuit brought forward by six uh, plaintiffs. And the suit was filed in the Western District of Texas, uh, Waco courts, where one of these plaintiffs lives. And the, the lawsuit effectively challenges whether or not OFAC has the authority to act directly against a technology, uh, an open source technology such as Tornado Cash, and whether it can be specifically uh, designated or it can be added to the specifically designated list of uh, nationals and blocked persons or the SDN list. So it was really interesting. We, we do know there was another crypto mixer that had been sanctioned uh, earlier called Blender.io. But in this lawsuit, the plaintiffs argue that uh, Blender was being operated under central control and Tornado Cash has not been. So it is it is interesting. You know, there's also some positioning that th this sanction actually infringes upon First Amendment rights, where one of the plaintiffs uh, provided an example that they wanted to maintain privacy and separation of their financial donations uh, separate from their political speech. So they effectively said uh, they could be providing donations to an entity and then trying to avoid being uh, targeted by other entities that uh, don't align with that political uh, political perspective. And lastly, the third course of this suit talks about trapped ETH. And I think perhaps the, the OFAC guidance around how to untrap your ETH by providing transaction details addresses that. But you know, sort of wrap it all together. Despite updates in the frequently asked questions, there are a lot of people who remain confused about whether or not they can engage in this, this technology. So basically, the, the OFAC FAQs specify that although engaging with Tornado Cash connected transactions are prohibited, interacting with the open source code itself in a way that does not involve prohibited transactions is not actually prohibited. So Parth, I think you were saying you've, you've heard of people who have applied for a license, say they want to download that software, they want to run it for research purposes. Uh, I think they'll, they'll still be continuing evolution, so we'll try to watch this. But my advice for anyone who's trying to keep up on this is boil another pot of coffee because it's a lot to get through. And uh, we'll take that as an opportunity to pivot to our last story of the week, which is uh, loyalty programs. And let's talk about what Starbucks and Abra are doing. And it's really interesting. So if you guys haven't read it, Starbucks has come forward and said they're coming forward with a new product called Odyssey, which is essentially a loyalty program. And they're working with Polygon. So Parth, why do you think it is that they chose Polygon as a, as a chain to work with? Yeah. So I think because A, cheaper transactions and fast transactions. Uh, it also kind of plays down to the ESG narrative um, as Polygon's consensus protocol is proof of stake. So it doesn't really use a lot of uh, electricity. Uh, but what I really want to point out is that this move is, is really bold because we understand how many people use Starbucks digital wallet. It's probably one of the most recognizable uh, coffee wallets out there. And so the way they have positioned themselves is that they don't even call these these journey or journey stamps as NFTs. They talk about collectibles and how users can embark this journey and learn more about Starbucks as a company and just coffee in general. 
and then they they can collect these uh, these journey stamps. But I think there is something more interesting to this. So I, I believe that this is also a bet on open systems. So loyalty points traditionally have been always in a closed environment. But I think Starbucks believes that there is more value in open systems and, and really porting your loyalty to other places, right? Or using your journey stamps in other places. So we don't know what could happen, that, but that's sort of the beauty of it. And it's also like a really major paradigm shift. So instead of like having punch cards at your local coffee house and you you keep coming back to them since you're sort of locked in, I believe that Starbucks is thinking more about the broader game of having open systems. That's their bet. In, in part, it's funny you say that because an application on my phone, I'm going to carry with me. And you say, I literally am holding in my hands two coffee punch cards from the same place because I never remember to bring it. So it's just going to make it a better user experience. I think about the existing loyalty program and rewards apps. I mean, 150 points will get you a, a drink or 50 points will get you a drip coffee or something like that. So they've already got a pretty wide install base. I'm just really interested to see how this new user experience, this new format will be received. And you know, I was looking at uh, the, the press release around this and the vice president of loyalty strategy and marketing, a uh, gentleman named Ryan Butts says, this will be available later this year. So here we are, it's mid-September. Um, you know, hopefully we'll see something before the holidays. Yeah, I, I love this kind of mass adoption. If you remember, we also covered the story on Reddit community points and how Reddit decided to use Arbitrum Nova to, uh, to offer community points. So I, I think we'll see like a lot of adoption in these really mainstream websites. That's how you get people using this stuff, right? It's not necessarily people that are explicitly going to a MetaMask wallet and using a DeFi protocol. That's what percentage of society is likely to do that versus they get their coffee every day and, oh, there's this new feature and they don't even know that they're using it. And, and Jack, you talk about that that convenience form factor. I mean, Abra is doing something as well around loyalty and it with a, a familiar form factor, right? Yeah. They've partnered with a credit card issuer to uh, actually tap into a loyalty program there as well. My understanding is that um, this is an opportunity for just pulling in more people around that. So it is kind of interesting that um, we don't know quite as much of, about that at the moment, but we'll certainly dig in. Yeah, that I mean, that was uh, Bill Barhart uh, from Abra was on um, Blockworks Empire podcast like a week or two ago. I thought it was a really good episode. And he sort of has this consistent narrative of uh, users are unlikely to be that that prototype of like just logging on to a MetaMask and interfacing directly with crypto versus like, let's build this entire suite of what Abra has is like you know a, a bank like feel, but it's using uh, crypto on the back end to do all of these different things in a potentially better way. And then users can interface with Abra as the centralized custodian that plugs into everything on the back end. And they're going to be you know as transparent as possible to be able to provide those solutions, but make it user friendly, unlike using you know DeFi apps are today. And I think that's the big draw is like eventually if you make the UI better, if you make it. You know, a lot of people don't even know that they're using some of this stuff. That's where you get a lot of that adoption. I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, if, if we have a card, we use the card, the card could be paying on, on one end. It could be that it's associating it with a, an, a foreign exchange rate, converting it from something. Like if I'm traveling through an airport internationally, I get the option to pay in the local currency or my base currency. And, you know, I think we may see that as, as more and more of these rails are added, the experience will be the same for the user, but the actual back end will be uh, new and potentially offering you more options. 
It's great. I mean, certainly we'll do a little bit more homework on that one and keep reading. If you guys are, are like me, which I know you guys are, you're, you're just constantly consuming. So I think it's great that we have the opportunity to do that and continue to update and share information. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, guys. Hope you guys have a great week. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.